I don't know about you, but it seems incredible to me that we are fast approaching the holiday seasons and the season of Christmas. It seemed like it was just a week ago last year. But so we are, for in the kingdom of God, time moves on until there is no longer time as we understand it, when the kingdom of God has been fulfilled. In fact, this morning in Matthew's gospel, he is dealing with just that issue, the kingdom of God, which is the eternal, infinite presence of God's reign and rule, finally taking place within all of God's creation. And there's story after story of this. This morning's is an example. Hear now these words from Matthew's gospel, chapter 25 through 1 through 13. Then the kingdom of God will be like this. Ten bridesmaids took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. When the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, all of them became drowsy and slept. But at midnight, there was a shout, Look, here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all those bridesmaids got up and trimmed their lamps. They lit them. The foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise replied, No, there will not be enough for you and for us. You had better go to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they went to buy it, The bridegroom came, and those who were ready went with him into the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later the other bridesmaids came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us too. But he replied, Truly I tell you, I don't know you. Keep awake, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. This is the word of the Lord. My father had an old dog that he loved dearly, but his nickname came to be Pointless. He was a bird dog, actually a pointer. The problem was, even as much as he was trained, on a hunt he would get to the covey of quail, and inevitably, before the shooters got there, the dog would break point and flush the covey or be distracted by a squirrel or a rabbit flushing the covey regardless. So we nicknamed him Pointless. He couldn't stay on point. This character reminds me of what this parable, remember it's a parable, is all about. Simply said, Jesus is coming again. Yet that coming has been delayed and will take longer than we think. Therefore, Matthew warns his congregation to stay on point no matter how long the bridegroom is delayed. Sound advice, especially in our world where cults rising regularly thinking they know the exact date, sell all their possessions, go up to some mountain somewhere, and are sorely disappointed when the next day arrives with no second coming of Jesus. 
In a way, Matthew's parable tells us to chill out. No one knows when Jesus will return. I mean, the bridesmaids were even sleeping. That's fine. He's been delayed. You can even go about your life. However, the parable also tells us in that way of living, of patience, to persevere and to prepare. Sooner or later, the groom will show up and the wedding feast will happen and whether or not we get into that feast depends, according to this parable at least, about how prepared we are for his coming. Now Matthew wrote this parable into his gospel for his young church. They were just one generation away from Jesus' life and death and resurrection. But even by then, some 40 or 50 years, their life had not changed much. Those new Christians were losing hope wondering when in the world Jesus was going to show up again. We whitewash sometimes how brutal life was under the rule of the lordship of Caesar. You've heard stories that Caesar kept people in their place, kept them from rioting by offering them entertainment after entertainment. Sound familiar? And originally those entertainments were bloodthirsty events between Uh, gladiators and and wild beasts soon it morphed into Christians and wild beasts and all the people were entertained by that in the Colosseums but something changed maybe the women's temperance movement moved in and said it's too gory we need to come up with a new plan and so they came up with chariot races as the new way of entertainment and everybody in every town would go to the chariot race and there were Teams, just like there are football teams, and everybody had their own tribal team. And apparently something happened at one point so that one team didn't do what they should have done, and the people on their, the supporters of that team actually killed all the members of the team. That would be the driver, the pit crew, uh, the owner, all of them killed. It, it made the Caesar so angry This was in Thessalonica. It made the Caesar so angry that he developed a plan to uh, invite everybody to this like massive worldwide wrestling uh, chariot event marketed out of everywhere. It was like the big event. They all came, got to the Colosseum waiting for this giant chariot race and unbeknownst to them, Caesar had all the Roman militia set up hiding behind walls, and they came in and literally killed all 7,000 people in the Colosseum, men, women, and children. That's what it was like. No wonder they were losing heart and patience, waiting for Jesus to come again. The moral is clear. The five maidens who planned and prepared and persevered in their long wait, keeping extra oil, got into the wedding feast when the groom showed up and those who didn't were left out. And it's meant, I think, to keep those early Christians on point. Do not lose hope. Do not lose your vision. Do not lose your focus. Be prepared. Be persistent. Persevere. 
all three great Boy Scout mottos. But I think there's a deeper meaning to this as well. One that actually brings it closer to home. It strikes me, why was Jesus delayed? Why is he constantly delayed as we understand it? Because we always say, until he comes again at our communion table, we hold up the second coming of Christ all through Advent season. We come to it at the time of year we're in now during Christ the King Sunday. Yet Jesus seems to delay year after year, generation after generation. And it strikes me that one of the deeper points of this is, of course, he delays because that is in the only way we will grow up spiritually and emotionally without this intervention of Christ and that this is the point of life for us to grow up spiritually and emotionally. Think about your own life and the point of it. Now this is an old book, probably older than many of you, but in the 80s, I think, maybe late 80s, Stephen Covey came out with his famous seven habits of highly effective people. And the first habit is to begin with the end in mind, to vision what your ending wants to look like and then to build your life accordingly to reach that goal. And in every marriage counseling experience I have with those to be married, I asked them to write down five goals for their life together, the end in mind, so that when they're sitting on the front porch and they're much older looking back on their life, they can say, yes, these were our goals, this was the end we had, and this is how we worked so hard to reach it. Plan your life. Persevere. Prepare. But what I find most interesting in Covey's title is the word habit. Seven habits of highly effective people. For the Bible understands that habit is one of the great bedrocks of character and spiritual formation. In fact, an analogy can be made that the oil that the bridesmaids kept were in fact the habits that they lived. The Old Testament understands the symbolic meaning of the oil as the mishnahs, the mishnah, the acts of good that we do. And in the same way, they would be the habits of living well that we live up to. There's this old traditional proverb that goes, so a thought reap an action, so an action reap a habit. So a habit reap a character, so a character reap a destiny. Our habits serve as the groundwork for who we are at our core. And Matthew challenges us to form habits of faith, to practice faith living in our lives in a way that when Jesus does come again, whether it is at the end of time in the apocalyptic parousia or at the end of our own personal time, we can say, we were ready. Granted, in Matthew's day, living this way was much easier. People didn't live much past 40. That was the life expectancy. Now it's more like 80. But the power of the Spirit to give us, that gives us the strength to endure, that is our calling. 
I recently had a conversation with a friend of mine in Charlotte who's dying of brain cancer. He's 55, and he was a very, very successful corporate litigator attorney. He was at the peak of his career when he was diagnosed, and he lamented, I only worked so hard because I just wanted to build enough of a nest egg so that I could finally step back and enjoy my family and my life. Now, he didn't finish the sentence. That's true, I said. So many of us do that. But I also want to suggest that, as most men, you work so hard because you were successful at it. And it's easier to be successful at work than it is to be successful at home as a father and a husband. Busted, he said. But I can promise you with whatever time I have left, I'm going to change that. By the way, I've never heard anyone near death lament that they wish they had worked more. So Matthew challenges us to keep oil in our lamps, and he means to stay at the tiller of the ship that guides our life and keep it set in the right direction guided by that north star. The direction that we want to arrive at, the end. And for Christians and people of faith, that direction is about coming to that end and seeing it illumined by the incredible light of Jesus Christ and seeing ourselves truly for who we are, for how we treated others, and what we were on the inside of us rather than what we look like on the outside of us. This is the oil we're called to preserve. It's called moral character formation, and it only comes through habit and practice. As the old 12-step saying goes, you cannot think yourself into a new way of acting. You have to act yourself into a new way of thinking. My lament We live in a time and culture where this kind of character formation built on the habits of the heart of faith and discipline and civility and kindness needed to sustain it is, in my view, going the way of typewriters, ironically, which work only because the character is imprinted on the key and then imprinted on the paper, which is what character means, that which is imprinted on us. Every day in the news, a new person is outed as a sexual predator. Our political, business, Hollywood, and religious leaders seem to have about as much character as an overcooked string of spaghetti. It's now all about fame and celebrity, marketability, and polls. Of all the characteristics of being an American, I have to lament that we are the most marketed overly consumed and least fulfilled civilization ever. The amount of time, talent, and treasure we spend on making ourselves appear popular, good, beautiful, righteous, and successful. Did I say popular? It's mind-boggling. Now, the point of life for us is about our brand 
and how ourselves individually have been branded. What happened? Was it television that changed our culture and our character formation so drastically? Where we became more outwardly focused, we began to think because of marketing and consumption and materialism, connection to everyone and everybody that our self-worth and our deeper character was formed by conforming to the social norms and expectations that are all around us. Is that what happened? Instead of practicing that inner habit of doing things the hard but integrated way that makes for real character work. Look, I know I sound like an old fogey, but I got to tell you, I've heard the young people lament this too. Our phones, our virtual connections, Facebook, the pretense we show to the world, this has become our habitual practice. Everyone laments. It seems that our ship of character floats rudderless on a large sea of competing winds. Maybe the strongest wind today is the wind of rampant individualism. Each one of us now is the decider of what is right or wrong, what is virtuous and not, what is good and bad, and what is fact or fake. Each one of us has become the captain of our own souls, the master of our own ship, that pitiful Invictus poem that I heard the Civitan Club when they hosted eighth graders give their speech, and I judged it, I heard it. Four out of eight speeches, they lifted up that poem. I am the master of my fate, the captain of my soul, written by an alcoholic who ended up on his back in front of a bar. Each one of us has become the captain, and it is like a ship that has been mutinied by the sailors against the leaders. And each sailor thinks they know as much about navigation as the captain does, because, after all, it's on the Internet. So let us turn back and ask the question, in the end, do we want to be prepared Do we want to have formed in us a deeper practice of character that pays off in the end our oil still, the fuel? And if so, then let us wake up. Let us become aware of how we live our lives, of how much of what happens outside affects what we go on inside of us. And then to ask the question is, what's going on the outside really the point? Isn't it more what's going on in the inside between God and me? Now, I am accused of speaking 10,000-foot flyover sermons, theological and theoretical, and I said that this morning, by the way, and Bill laughed, and, and I got busted because I said, Bill, shut up. And I was busted because we're trying to teach our kids character formation, and one of those lessons is not to say shut up to anyone. So I apologize publicly. But I'm going to give you some points that may help. The first is 
to worship God and to kneel at the feet of God's holiness. For we are not God, but God only is sovereign. And at the feet of God's holiness, we understand that there is the standard of unconditional love, of unbelievable expectation, of moral justice and mercy and righteousness that stands way above us that we are called to live up to. To claim the holiness of God was like Isaiah when he had his lips touched by the hot coal and all he could sing was holy, holy, holy. It reminds us who we are and who God is. The second point is for us to, in that humility of God's sovereignty, be willing to change. The theological word is convert, as the Zeihises were about the hymnal, to change, to allow ourselves to be open to the possibility that we don't know it all and that change might come to us no matter our age. This is what it means to be honest about ourselves and our biases and our faith perspectives. It means to be converted. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself is our biblical passage that undergirds our mission statement. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, that person is a new creation. And to be open to that possibility is what helps us grow into something new. And it illumines for us our own sinful and prideful nature. A humble and contrite heart is what the Lord demands. All great persons of character have been convicted and converted by a higher moral power than their own. That is the second point. And it can even be true for Louis C.K. and Harvey Weinstein. Yes. Third point, suffering. You want character formation? Suffering. It can go the wrong way, of course. Cynicism and violence and indifference. But with the cross of Christ, the suffering presence of God as our symbol, it becomes the very way of reconciliation and redemption, and new life. Paul wrote in Romans, we boast in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts, into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And finally, the fourth point, acting, doing It is easier to act your way into a new way of thinking than to think your way into a new way of acting. Make it a habit. A psychiatrist I've been reading about after 35 years of practice said that he has practiced Freudian and Jungian, Skinnerian behavior, all kinds of different ways of therapy. But what he said, it finally comes down to for any real mental or spiritual or emotional growth are two things. First is the ability to see the world as it really is 
and ourselves in it, which means you don't live in an illusion. And in ourselves in it, it means that we take responsibility for who we are, claiming the parts that are good and the parts that need forgiving. It's called confession. And the second point is our willingness to do something for someone else anonymously. Saying that if we do it out there so that everybody can see it, we basically let all the good energy of that out into the world while hiding within us all the bad parts of ourselves. Instead of that, share all the bad parts of ourselves and don't tell anybody about all the good parts that you were doing. At that point, the good spiritual presence is within us. Acts of anonymous mercy, these two things will build character and take our minds off our often miserable little selves. In the end, it is all the oil we need to keep our lamps burning. Amen.